Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Happy New Year and welcome to Season 2 of Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, January 6th. I'm Leslie Palma. And I'm Teresa Watson. Thank you for joining us. In our top story tonight, we will discuss how the abortion landscape is still in flux as we start 2023. Aerosmith's frontman Steven Tyler is being sued for charges of sexual assault, coercion of an abortion, and involuntary infamy. We will share the woman's heartbreaking testimony, and also our guest Kevin Burke, co-founder of Rachel's Vineyard, will be here to help us break down this tragedy. Leslie will tell you about possible trouble for an Indiana abortionist who alerted the media after performing an abortion on a 10-year-old rape victim and other pro-life news in Abortion in the News. Teresa has the story of incoming Representative George Santos's current legal challenges and other political happenings in Political News in a Nutshell. Leslie and I will have the opportunity to talk to Dr. Matt Harrison, a frontline doctor, who will tell us how dangerous abortion drugs really are for the mom. Be sure to stay till the end when we have a fun update on pro-life Spider-Man. 2023 opened with the abortion landscape in the United States still in flux. Most abortions are banned in 13 states, primarily in the South and Southwest. A heartbeat law in effect in Georgia protects babies there from abortion at about six weeks. As state legislatures convene in the new year, several will be considering new laws restricting access to abortion. In Florida, where abortion is legal until 15 weeks, some pro-life groups are pushing for a bill banning it at six weeks, but legislative leaders have said they are waiting for the Florida Supreme Court to rule on whether the 15-week ban violates the state's constitution. Pro-life Republicans now have a supermajority in the House and Senate. In North Carolina, Republicans fell short in the midterms of a legislative supermajority that could override the Democratic governor's expected veto of any new abortion limits. But House Speaker Tim Moore has said he is confident Republicans could join with a handful of Democrats to pass some new veto-proof abortion restrictions. North Carolina currently allows abortion until 20 weeks, making it and Florida outliers in the South. Abortion is also legal until 20 weeks in Nebraska, but battles are brewing. 30 state senators wrote to outgoing Governor Pete Ricketts to say they support a ban on most abortions after 12 weeks, but 33 votes are needed for it to pass. Incoming Governor Jim Pillen made his anti-abortion stance a pillar of his gubernatorial campaign, but has since said he will push for policies to, quote, save as many babies as possible. He has not come out in favor of a 12-week ban. Abortion-friendly states also have new laws making it easier to kill the unborn. California will allow trained nurse practitioners, midwives, and physician assistants to provide abortions without supervision from a physician. In New York, a law now requires private insurers that cover births to also cover abortion services without requiring co-payments or co-insurance. In New Jersey, one of several states where abortion is legal through any stage of pregnancy, a new law requiring individual and small business health insurance plans to cover abortion went into effect January 1st. The new rule will apply to larger businesses in the Garden State later this year. On the federal level, three pro-life bills likely will come up for a vote in the House of Representatives in the next few weeks. The No Taxpayer Funding for Abortion and Abortion Full Disclosure Act would make permanent the long-standing Hyde Amendment that prohibits tax dollars from funding most abortions. 
the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act would ensure that infants born alive after an abortion receive the same protection of law and degree of care as any newborn. The third bill is not a proposed law, but a congressional resolution that would condemn the more than 200 attacks on pro-life facilities, groups, and churches since May, when the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe was leaked to the media. The House is dominated by Republicans, so the measures are expected to pass, but they will run into a brick wall in the Senate, where the pro-abortion Democrat Party has a slim majority. News broke last week that Aerosmith frontman Steven Tyler is being sued by a woman with whom he had a relationship in the 1970s when she was underage and he was in his 20s. Julia Holcomb, now a Texas resident, is charging the singer with sexual assault, coercion of an abortion, and involuntary infamy. We are very familiar with this story at Priest for Life because Julia approached us in 2011 to help her get her story out after Tyler wrote about her again in one of his books. Here's how it happened. Kevin Burke, a pastoral associate here and co-founder of the post-abortion healing ministry, Rachel's Vineyard, read in the Aerosmith autobiography, Walk This Way, about Tyler's abortion experience. Kevin will be joining us in a moment. Tyler wrote, it was a big crisis. It's a major thing when you're growing something with a woman, but they convinced us that it would never work out and would ruin our lives. You go to the doctor and they put the needle in her belly and they squeeze in the stuff and you watch and that comes out dead. I was pretty devastated. In my mind, I'm going, Jesus, what have I done? Kevin wrote an essay for National Review about the saline abortion that ended Julia's pregnancy at five months and about Tyler's lingering abortion regret. Julia saw the essay and reached out to Kevin to help get her side of the story out and what a story it was. Let's hear Julia tell some of it in her own words. This is from her testimony with the Silent No More Awareness Campaign at the March for Life in Washington, DC in 20. My name is Julia Holcomb. And today, I'm going to be silent no more. It is very sobering to stand before you and confess the most grave sin I ever committed. When I was 16 years old, I met Steven Tyler at a rock concert in Portland, Oregon. And we began a three-year relationship that ended in a horrific late-term saline abortion. I never dreamed that I would speak publicly about that horrible day. But when Stephen made the account of, our, of my abortion public, I knew that I could be silent no more. My children found out about it. I had to sit down in my living room and tell my family, my children, that I had had an abortion. And it was a very sad evening. We shed a lot of tears. But my children were very loving and forgiving. I was at least five months pregnant when I was coerced into undergoing the saline abortion that I had. I was in the hospital. I was recovering from a fire that had nearly claimed my life. Originally, Stephen had asked me to marry him, and I was looking forward to having my baby and beginning a family together. While I was in the hospital, he came to me and said that I needed to have an abortion now. He said it had to happen before I left the hospital. I had never stood up to Stephen before, but I resisted him for hours. I told him that it was an unfair thing to come and ask me to have an abortion while I was barely recovered from a terrible fire. I told him that I wanted my baby, and that even if he didn't want to marry me, I still wanted to keep my child. Eventually, he put the choice between him and my baby. 
He told me that if I did not have the abortion, he would send me away. And I was so young and frightened that I caved in to pressure. As soon as I agreed to the abortion, I was quickly moved into another part of the hospital. The preparation I received for my abortion was a doctor that stood beside me with a needle out of my view, and he said, hold very still, or you could be killed or injured. I froze in fear, and before I could even ask him what he meant, he had stabbed my stomach with a needle, puncturing my uterus, and began to inject saline. He told me that my baby was dead. <clears throat> Stephen told me that everything would be fine if I would just agree to the abortion. But that was a lie. Everything was worse after that abortion. Our relationship was never the same. I could never look at him again without remembering what he had coerced me into doing in my baby that I had lost. And I don't think he ever could look at me again without remembering what he had done. He told me later that he was racked with guilt, that he regretted what he had done, just as I did, and that he dreaded what God would do to him because of my abortion. About a year later, I returned home, but I was a broken and wounded spirit. I had terrible nightmares. I would wake up in the night reliving that horrible abortion. When I went to a church retreat, I, I made the decision to give my life to God and to confess my abortion and to ask for God's forgiveness and healing. Julia became a devout Catholic and the mother of six sons, but her past came crashing back when Tyler wrote about her and one of her sons read an excerpt in a tabloid next to a picture of a teenage Julia with Tyler. Last week, Julia filed a lawsuit under the California Child Victims Act, which opened a three-year period during which the statute of limitations was lifted on alleged sexual crimes against children. Her suit was filed on the final day. The story exploded in the media, but so far, Tyler has not commented. The singer and former American Idol judge has been married and divorced twice and is the father of four children, including the actress Liv Tyler. He also has four grandchildren. He's now 74, and his current partner is 35 years old. In a statement released by the law firm representing her, Julia said, I want this action to expose an industry that protects celebrity offenders, to cleanse and hold accountable an industry that both exploited and allowed me to be exploited for years, along with so many other naive and vulnerable kids and adults. Because I know that I am not the only one who suffered abuse in the music industry, I feel it is time for me to take this stand and bring this action to speak up and stand in solidarity with the other survivors. We reached out to Julia to have her on the show, but her lawyers advised her not to do any more interviews. But Kevin Burke is here to talk about Julia's amazing transformation and how healing after abortion can turn lives around. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks so much, Teresa and Leslie. Well, Kevin, after everything Julia went through with Tyler, the fire, the abortion, the abandonment, how do you think she was able to get her life back on track? Well, just a, a brief background. This story came to light because of two converging streams in my life at that time. One was a great love and passion for music. As you both know, I'm an amateur musician and songwriter. But also, I have a great interest in reading autobiographies of, of musicians and bands that I admire and, and their whole creative process of, of developing their music. At the same time, as I'm you know, involved in this hobby, uh, as a licensed social worker, I'm serving in, on a Rachel's Vineyard retreat team. 
and in the overall ministry for abortion healing as a counselor. And I'm learning how women, but I'm also being surprised how men are emotionally and spiritually impacted by being part of an abortion decision, uh, particularly when they're present at the procedure in some way. So back, you know, I guess around 2010, I'm reading a bio about the group uh, Aerosmith called Walk This Way. And Steven Tyler, of course, is the very talented, charismatic frontman singer, major songwriter. He was a popular judge on uh, American Idol at the time. So my experience in Rachel's, Rachel's Vineyard influenced me in writing about the situation in the National Review with honesty about what this young uh, mother suffered, their innocent child, of course, the horrific death, but also writing with compassion for Stephen's trauma and the need for emotional, spiritual reconciliation and healing of this loss. And as you might have mentioned, this was it was this compassion that uh, was reflected in my story that made Julia feel safe to contact me, which I have to say was quite a surprise when she reached out to me to share her story. And uh, and that was really the part of her healing journey beginning that is still unfolding to this day. All right. So when you first learned about the story, we worked really hard at Priest for Life to get the word out, but mainstream media couldn't have cared less. Then we thought it would gain some traction when the Me Too movement was in its heyday, but again, no interest. Why do you think there is such intense coverage now of Julia's lawsuit? My sense is that a lot of the groundwork uh, has been done over the years to empower victims of abuse, whether in families, schools, churches. Uh, consider as well what we've learned about abuse in Hollywood with Harvey Weinstein, the Jeffrey Epstein case, which is still in development. And with the story in the Rolling Stone, maybe there's an opening now so many years later to finally take a closer look at the exploitation of minor females by rock bands and musicians, their road crews. And it's important to note that various handlers and associates often serve as gatekeepers for the band members uh, and fellow abusers of these vulnerable young women. Wow. Well, Kevin, Julia said she's hoping to bring about change in the music industry. Do you think that there's any hope? Yeah, I do think there's hope. And, it, it, uh, you know, just like movements like Mothers Against Drunk Driving helped uh, bring about massive awareness and change in behavior and accountability and very serious financial con consequences to drunk driving, which has changed behavior. Bringing these issues uh, out into the light, sharing stories of those exploited and abused by the industry helps not only protect uh, women who are vulnerable like Julia was, but it also helps protect the band members like Steven Tyler who are experiencing you know, the rise of stardom and all its temptations. And it's a message to the executives and the handlers and the managers that you need to not only protect young women and minors, but you need to advise and create conditions where uh, this kind of abuse is not taking place. Well, Kevin, we really appreciate you joining us this evening. Julia's story is incredible and it might not have come to light without you. Um, and please tell our viewers where they can help find healing for themselves or a loved one. I'll give you three places to go. One is rachelsvineyard.org, uh, extensive info on abortion healing and retreats, abortionforgiveness.com. You'll find a zip code generated list of abortion healing programs in your area, including Rachel's Vineyard. And finally, for those who have experienced abuse, a powerful, beautiful experience of emotional, spiritual recovery from abuse called grieftograce.org. Great. Wow. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for everything you do to help women and men find their way back to the light after abortions. So thank you so much for joining us. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Good night. The South Carolina Supreme Court on Thursday struck down a law that would protect babies with a detectable heartbeat from abortion. South Carolina currently allows abortion at 22 weeks later than any other state in the South. 
An Indiana abortionist who alerted the media after performing an abortion on a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio will face a hearing before the Indiana Medical Licensing Board on February 23rd. Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita said Caitlin Bernard violated privacy laws by speaking to the press about the girl and the circumstances of her abortion. The board will determine if Bernard, an outspoken, media-friendly abortion activist, should face disciplinary action. Rokita believes Indiana authorities may have been able to protect the girl from further abuse if Bernard had immediately reported it. He said Bernard knew about the abuse by June 27th, if not earlier, but did not report anything to authorities until July 2nd. Rokita said the girl was returned to the home where her alleged rapist, a 27-year-old undocumented immigrant, also resided. Vandals in Portland, Oregon, defaced a pro-life billboard in a very disturbing way. The billboard, erected by Pro-Life Across America, shows a beautiful baby girl wearing a pink bow next to the words, Protect the Babies and Heartbeat 18 Days After Conception. The vandal scrawled black X's over the baby's eyes and spray-painted the words, Kill Them Kids. No arrests have been made. Pro-Life America plans to replace the billboard. Hungary is a Central European nation with a population of 9.7 million people. Since it was legalized in 1956, 6 million people in the former communist country have been killed by abortion. Hungary's population decline in 2022 was the greatest in any one-year period since the end of World War II, with the country's declining fertility rate pinpointed as the cause. Now, in an effort to boost the fertility rate and reverse the population decline, pro-life minister Viktor Orban has announced that mothers under 30 and those with four or more children will be exempt from income taxes for the rest of their lives. In 2018, Ireland legalized abortion up to 12 weeks. Now an abortion provider there said that cutoff is too rigid and wants to see abortion legalized up until birth. As the Department of Health in Ireland conducts a review of the 2018 law, pro-lifers say the Minister of Health has met repeatedly with abortion advocates while refusing to meet with them. The Arizona Appeals Court last week ruled that abortionists in the state can't be prosecuted for violating an 1854 ban on the procedure because a 15-week ban enacted after Roe v. Wade was overturned takes precedent. precedence. The ruling came just days before pro-life attorney General Mark Brinovich was replaced by pro-abortion Chris Mays, and after Republican Governor Doug Ducey, who signed the 15-week bill, was succeeded by pro-abortion Democrat Katie Hobbs. And that's Abortion in the News. Breaking news this week, Senator Debbie Stabenow, Democrat from Michigan, will not seek re-election in 2024, opening a potentially competitive Senate seat Republicans will target as a pickup opportunity. Stabenow, a member of Democratic Senate leadership, announced her decision Thursday morning, saying she wants to clear the way for a crop of new political leaders. Inspired by a new generation of leaders, I have decided to pass the torch in the U.S. Senate. I am announcing today that I will not seek re-election and will leave the U.S. Senate at the end of my term on January 3, 2025, she said in a statement. Stabenow was rated 100% by NARAL, indicating an exclusively pro-abortion voting record. Law enforcement officials in Brazil expect to revive fraud charges against incoming U.S. Representative George Santos, Republican from New York, in a case stemming back to 2008, the New York Times is reporting. The case involving a stolen checkbook has been on hold for nearly a decade because police said they were not able to locate Santos, according to the Times. The Times reported he wrote on a Brazilian social media website in August 2009, I know I screwed up, but I want to pay. The next year, Santos and his mother told law enforcement officials that he had stolen the checkbook of a man his mother had worked for and used it to make fraudulent purchases. 
In September 2011, a judge approved a charge against Santos and ordered him to respond to the case. However, according to the New York Times, in October of that year, he was in the United States. And as Dish Network's company records show, he was working in their College Point, Queens facility. Santos had told the New York Post he did nothing wrong. I am not a criminal here, not here or in Brazil or any jurisdiction in the world. Absolutely not, Santos said. That didn't happen. Joe Murray, a lawyer for Santos, said Monday, I am in the process of engaging local counsel to address the, this alleged camp complaint against my client. If Santos fails to present a defense in the Brazilian case, he will be tried in absentia, the Times said. If convicted, he could receive up to five years behind bars plus a fine. But the Times said a criminal conviction does not necessarily disqualify a congressional lawmaker from holding office. And it is certainly not the first controversy Santos is facing. Santos, 34, has admitted he fabricated parts of his resume, including that he graduated from Baruch College and worked for Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. He also falsely claimed on his campaign website his mother was Jewish and his grandparents escaped the Nazis in World War II. At the opening day of the 118th Congress, Santos was hounded by reporters. Santos ignored questions about the growing calls for his resignations as voters in Queens and on Long Island feel betrayed. Fabrications about his background followed him to Capitol Hill to represent the 3rd Congressional District, replacing Tom Susie, who wrote in a New York Times op-ed a con man is succeeding me in office today. He must be removed by Congress or by prosecutors because there is no indication that he will be moved by conscience to voluntarily resign. The religious makeup of the new Congress bucks the trends seen in American religious life. The Pew Research Center says the Senate and House members are largely untouched by the continuing decrease in the portion of Americans who identify as Christian and the comparable increase in the share of those who say they do not have a religious affiliation. Christians comprise 88% of the voting members of the 118th Congress, who were expected to be sworn in this week, a number that has not changed much since the 1970s, when 91% of members said they were affiliated with that faith. Senator Kirsten Sinema, an independent from Arizona, remains the only member of the new Congress who uses the description of religiously unaffiliated. Representative Jared Huffman, a Democrat from California, described himself as humanist. Huffman also said he was the token humanist in Congress when he spoke via videotaped remarks to the Freedom From Religion Foundation annual convention in October. Overall, the 118th Congress looks similar to the previous body when comparing the two religiously. And that's political news in a nutshell. The FDA will now allow pharmacies to sell a dangerous abortion drug that has killed millions of babies and injured thousands of women. Previously, mifepristone could only be dispensed by clinics, medical offices, and hospitals or under the supervision of a licensed physician. For the first time, retail pharmacies, from corner drugstores to major chains like CVS and Walgreens, will be allowed to offer the pill in the United States under a regulatory change made Tuesday by the Federal Food and Drug Administration. The action could significantly expand access to chemical abortion. Until now, mifepristone, the first pill used in the two-drug medication abortion regimen, could be dispensed only by a few mail-order pharmacies or by specially certified doctors or clinics. 
Under the new FDA rules, patients will still need a prescription from a certified healthcare provider, but any, any pharmacy that agrees to accept those prescriptions and abide by certain other criteria can dispense the pills in its stores and by mail order. First approved under the Clinton administration, mifepristone is used to abort unborn babies up to about 10 weeks of pregnancy, although some abortion groups want to use it later. It works by blocking the hormone progesterone and basically starving the unborn baby to death. A second drug, misoprostol, induces labor and expels the baby's body. Misoprostol already is available in pharmacies because it has many other uses. Abortion drugs are used for more than half of all abortions in the United States, according to a report from the Pro-Abortion Guttmacher Institute. In 2020, the drug was responsible for 54% of all unborn babies' abortion deaths, up from 39% in 2017. Growing research indicates the drug is not safe for mothers either. To discuss this, we have with us here tonight Dr. Matt Harrison, who is a hospitalist with Novant Health in North Carolina and specializes in family practice and is medical director for Hope Prenatal Medical Clinic. Hi, Dr. Harrison. Hi. Dr. Harrison, is mifepristone as safe as the FDA claims? Uh, many of us really do not believe so. And it's certainly not safe for at least half of the patients that are being exposed to it. Of course, that half of that is the baby. And we certainly know that its intent is to kill the baby. And so right off the bat, 50% of, its, of the patients are going to die from it. And then the other half is the mother who, uh, of the patients. And we're finding that it's not as safe as they uh, suspect either. And the problem with this, this new FDA regulation is that, you know, when, when this first came out, uh, they were assuring everyone that this is uh, trying to uh, attempt to have safe abortions for women. And part of the reasoning behind that was they said, well, we will be physically watching each woman take the abortion pill, making sure that it's delivered to a woman who has an intrauterine pregnancy, who is not having an ectopic pregnancy, who's not having an infection or any other problem, and we will watch them take this pill. And so now they're they're backing off on that, and now they're going to be dispensing this through pharmacies, just like any other medication. As many of you know, when you go to a pharmacy, many times you're picking up drugs or medications for other family members. Uh, you don't know exactly who's going to end up taking this medication. You don't know if they're going to be taking it properly in the way that the FDA is, is uh, recommended that it be taken. So this is another step where they're getting further and further away from safe health care for women. And, uh, and we're really disappointed by this, uh, this new regulation. Well, Dr. Harrison, um, what about the women that get prescribed this drug via a telemed appointment? Are there added dangers for her? Well, yes. And, and again, even in telemedicine um, uh, protocols, they're supposed to, one, have an ultrasound to make sure that the pregnancy is intrauterine, that it's not an ectopic pregnancy, because if a woman has an ectopic pregnancy that's in a fallopian tube or in an ovary or outside of the outside of the uh, uterus, and then they're given this medication, then the woman's ectopic pregnancy will uh, go undetected. Uh, she can rupture, bleed to death, have infections. And many of these women are also very far from any health care. That's why they are getting uh, telemedicine uh, delivery of these medications. And so when they have a complication, 
then uh, and bleeding, then they're just going to uh, not be able to get uh, access to health care. And that's a, one of our concerns above all is, is uh, safe health care for women. Dr. Harrison, another concern is that women are being forced or even in some cases tricked into aborting their babies. Will this new FDA regulation make that more of a possibility? Yes, of course. And as I mentioned earlier, many times when you go to a pharmacy, you might be picking up medication for a family member or for someone else. Uh, you could have women that uh, maybe have associates that um, they maybe they'd be pregnant and they could go to a, a, a doctor or uh, some type of medical facility, get a prescription, and then give that medication to someone else. Uh, and that other person might not even know they're getting the medication. It could be spiked into a drink or spiked into some type of food or something like that. And so I think we're going to see a rise in, in women that are not even wanting an abortion being exposed to this medication. And of course, that's obviously very dangerous. We ha we're going to have uh, women that are much further along than 10 weeks getting exposed to this medication. And I personally have seen women up to 13 weeks being given this medication to try to achieve an abortion. And so the rules and regulations that they said that they put in place for the safety of women are all going by the wayside. Uh, and they say that that is, you know, uh, to increase access for women's health care. Uh, and so I foresee that they're going to try to eventually try to make this over the counter, essentially put it in uh, dispensary machines where anybody can have access to it. And of course, we're going to see a large rise in, in women's deaths uh, and bleeding events and, and other problems associated with this. And then the, the wording in the, uh, in the legislation is also, in the regulations is also very cryptic in that they do not say that it has to be a doctor or a physician that is prescribing this. They've long pushed for mid-level providers, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants to prescribe this. And I think for pretty soon we're probably going to see pharmacists being able to dispense this. And that's a real concern because obviously, again, uh, the clinics and the pharmacies are not going to have um, uh, ultrasounds that are going to be checking to see the proper dates. And, and whether or not we have a problem pregnancy or an ectopic pregnancy, again, an, another step towards dangerous healthcare for women. Wow. Well, it's all very uh, distressing and it certainly doesn't sound like uh, healthcare to, no. to us. But Dr. Harrison, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this very critical topic. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Last year, we introduced you to a young man with an unusual ministry. He climbed skyscrapers to bring attention to the abortion holocaust in the United States. His name is Mason Deschamps, but he's better known as pro-life Spider-Man. Mason has climbed tall buildings all over the country, most recently the 54-story Ritz-Carlton in Los Angeles. For this climb, he was raising money for an organization called Let Them Live, which is helping a, a young woman named Olivia. The mother of three was considering abortion because she couldn't afford a fourth child. Here's a video of the November 29th climb at the Ritz-Carlton, posted on Mason's Instagram. Find him at Pro-Life Spider-Man. We, we going? are headed to Los Angeles to climb the Ritz-Carlton. We want to raise money for mothers who are in a crisis pregnancy 
and hopefully inspire new people to speak out. Hopefully we can show California what uh, love thy neighbor really means. In 73% of circumstances, women are choosing abortion because of financial burdens. But Let Them Live raises money to relieve those burdens so women can choose life. Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priest for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. We hope you will join us every Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We hope you will support this show and all of our broadcasts, including Just Ask Janet and pro-life leader Frank Pavone's broadcasts, by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priest for Life, which enables us to continue educating, equipping, and activating the pro-life community to end abortion. Do you have an idea for a story? Are you someone whose baby was saved by the help of a sidewalk counselor? Would you like to expose something in the abortion industry? Then please email us at media at priestsforlife.org. I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. And I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.